Good morning guys, welcome to uh, Morning Chat with Julian Hoes. The weather today is 14 degrees in Amsterdam, 17 degrees in Paris, 14 degrees in London, 14 degrees in Brussels and 15 degrees in Bucharest and things are starting to look up across the board. Austria seems to be managing quite well with its first phase of reopening and seems to be preventing a new rise in infections and is preventing a sudden second curve. The Netherlands has finally outlined the beginning of its exit strategy and is starting to reopen schools and starting to look at resuming some form of normality with Mark Rutte having made statements yesterday. And the EU seems to be doing a strong job at setting up the required tools to reboot the EU economy. Now, the Commission is uh, taking out credit loans under favourable commission conditions to support member states and eurobonds, well a sort of eurobonds, via the solidarity clause which is article 122 of the treaty of the functioning of the EU has started to see the support of Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor and this is a big step as this is the kind of move that leads to these types of projects actually taking off. There's also a uh, there's also talk about the EU budget that's uh, currently being negotiated being used to borrow funds on the market and loan the money to the member states to give them the support they need to run their economies. However, there are some problems with the strategy with Finland not being able to find the support in its parliament that it would need to be able to do this and uh, countries such as Austria, Germany, the Netherlands Czech Republic, Denmark, Latvia and Lithuania demanding more details on top on topics such as the sure unemployment scheme because they they don't necessarily think that it may be in their best interest and they want to know that everything that's going on at the same time. However, there is some bad news on the recovery fund and how to spend the money with the an EU official apparently having come forward about 20 minutes ago to say that the member states don't agree on how these funds will be or the size of the funds, or how they'd be used, or how they'd be raised. So there are some problems to be put in place. However, the Commission is still sticking to its guns and pushing for a 1 trillion euro recovery effort. Now, I had a couple of good questions recently, and one of them is very pertinent to what was happening a few nights ago, actually. So the Department of Health and Social Care in the UK recently started or is alleged to have started using about 128 sock puppet accounts on Twitter and probably on other social media accounts that were being used to uh, canvas social media and just push a very pro-government discourse and to support the government's decisions when it came to the herd immunity issue. Now, we're hearing multiple sides of this uh, some people are saying they're hearing rumblings that this was genuinely not a government strategy and this may have just been one one random person's choice of pushing this kind of discourse. Other people are saying that it was definitely reminiscent of behaviour of the government during the last general election, where they used sock puppet accounts to you know, spread support of Boris Johnson and make Boris Johnson look more popular in the lead-up to the election. However... We need to wait and see what happens, and this needs to be investigated. And the problem is that there's no real way of investigating it right now, because 
we are all busy fighting the COVID-19 pandemic. Another thing that popped up was the, um, the claims by Foreign and Commonwealth Office Chief Simon MacDonald, who claimed that the decision for the EU to not get involved in the EU's joint procurement scheme for personal protective equipment was a political one. However, he seems to have been forced to, to row back on this and uh, even wrote a letter to, the, uh, to one of the commissions in the Houses of Parliament to correct this and say that this was due to a misunderstanding. Now, the problem with this is that it seems like, to everybody who was paying attention, it seemed like there was a lot of confusion in the UK government on what to actually do. A lot of people ran straight for the conspiratorial thinking, this is just a Brexit strategy, this is just the EU, well, not, this is just the UK refusing to, to work with its European allies because of political dogma. I wasn't so sure this was the case. The arguments were that they basically didn't see the emails or that they forgot to reply to emails or some some kind of absolute nonsense of this type or something that just betrayed a level of incompetence of the UK government, which is easy to believe. However, we're now seeing calls for an investigation and it's likely that this would take place after this crisis had happened, so probably after the summer, sometime in September or October, I believe, once uh, the UK Parliament's resources come back. But I just wanted to say that this is just, this is very, this is worrying for a number of reasons, not only for the, um, the UK, but also for the UK's European allies, because if we... If us as the European Union can't trust the UK to actually do what it needs to do and to make sure that things are working on their side to the best of their abilities and that they're not taking self-destructive decisions that are impacting the way that, and that could impact the way the EU would function and fight a lot of these uh, crises, then how can the EU work effectively with the UK or protect itself effectively? Because, for example, we don't know if this PPE, this refusal to get involved in the PPE scheme could lead to a knock-on effect where the UK could have prolonged the infections or the crisis in the UK past the point where the EU states would be recovering and then the UK would, be, would have citizens travelling while sick and reigniting further outbreaks. We, we don't know how this is going to end. This is, this is worrying. The UK does need to get its act together, the UK government in particular. But we're seeing that they are taking this a little more seriously, with Priti Patel's immigration bill having been shut down and sidelined because of the current crisis and because of the fact that it was too restrictive to work in a time when the UK desperately needs people to come to the country and work. Now, this is something that I just wanted to add alongside it. So the executive director of the World Food Programme, a UN department, David Beasley, said that the world is facing widespread famine of biblical proportions. Now, this would mostly be concentrated in the developing world. However, this is still something that is of grave concern to people and the wider world because we can't have... This may just be my uh, liberalism or progressivism talking, but we can't have sections of the world where people are starving to death is just unacceptable. And while we were making a lot of progress towards that, uh, recent political decisions such as those by Donald Trump and the way in which 
some political actors are behaving means that this is getting worse. Now, this biblical famine would, would be the result of a perfect storm. So in parts of the developing world, particularly in Africa, there were severe locust swarms earlier this year. There are pre-existing food provision issues. There are problems with infrastructure. There are problems with political issues in Africa and other developing regions as well. And the big concern now is that due to the way that a lot of these developing countries have fragile health systems and the way in which the coronavirus has already impacted countries like France, the UK and Italy, which have far stronger and far more robust health systems, the idea is that these countries would not be able to cope at all. They will have a disproportionate level of damage to their economies due to the uh, outbreak in the pandemic and the resulting economic problems would cause severe strange strains on their resources. Now, one way to resolve this, according to the um, WFP, is that the $2 billion of pledged funding would need to be brought forward by all states involved, which is a high, high task to ask right now when you consider the fact that Donald Trump currently just cut funding for the WHO late last week. But there would also need to be an additional $350 million to set up a logistic network across these developing countries to enable and between them to be able to make sure that, fun, uh, that food, nutrition, financing can actually get to these regions and help these people out. Now, there's also the question of how we'd get additional the, the additional manpower to ensure that these networks are able to function properly and to support local actors to act in this. However... This would probably be done under the auspices of any, of, for example, the, EU, uh, the EU's global uh, reaction to COVID-19, uh, any US uh, NGOs that are currently acting on the ground, and also any UN programs that are still able to get men and women out there to be able to combat and support the uh, efforts to fight the COVID-19 crisis. Now... The final question that I have for today, is the EU being tough enough on Hungary and Poland? Now, this is a complicated question, because this is, there are certain things that you need to know about the way the EU functions and the powers that the EU has that not, not everybody knows, of course, because it is quite a complicated topic. But effectively, the EU has quite limited powers when it comes to being tough on countries that are anti-democratic or that are going against the EU, we'll say, uh, norms and values. The, uh, so just to give people a... Just to give you guys a, some perspective on what's happening. So Hungary, a few weeks ago, basically voted for a law that concentrated all power in the country in uh, Viktor Orban, the uh, current prime minister and the man who currently holds all the power in Hungary. There was also the uh, there is also an ongoing issue in Poland where not only are they taking similar steps to Hungary in the, in the way they're fighting democratic values but in Poland, the gravest issue that I've got quite a few friends protesting on the ground is the issues regarding women's rights and the way in which 
the Polish state is, is launching attack after attack after attack. Now, this is being done in connection with efforts by the Polish church to damage the reputation of uh, women's rights NGOs and to also impact the way in which these NGOs are able to function, access funding, and in general is causing a lot of distress because a lot of these organizations aren't able to actually get to the people they need to get to to spread information. They're not able to support the people who need the support when it comes to things such as information on safe sex and abortion, and we're seeing a rolling back of rights. Now, normally you'd expect, considering the fact that the EU has... Uh, some states that are incredibly aggressive in condemning this kind of behavior in developing and third world countries. The EU has a reputation for not being able to actually do much right now. So the commentary of the EU on these topics tends to be very, very, very similar in every case and tends to not really have much concrete oomph, I'll say. The word is escaping me right now but uh, it doesn't have the ability to have an impact. Now, for example, these tend to fill the form of the EU going fully committed to values, following developments closely, looking for dialogue, the respect for values remains essential, a lot of very... a lot of normative, but ultimately impotent discourse. Same thing happened when Turkey invaded northern Syria. There was a lot of talk about how Turkey needed to respect human rights in northern Syria, had to respect the sovereignty of other countries, that they couldn't do this, couldn't do that, blah, blah, blah. This, this doesn't work. This, this is simply not the case, and the EU is not being tough enough. Now, the EU is currently taking some steps. So there are calls to remove the voting rights of the ruling party in in Hungary from the European Parliament and from their MEPs, same for the Justice and Peace Party in Poland. The EPP is currently uh, being very wishy-washy on how it's going to act towards Fidesz, the ruling party in Hungary, and uh, they keep dancing between there needs to be but there needs to be an impact in what we do, and they are also fighting, they're fighting a two-front battle. They, they don't necessarily want to kick Fidesz out because it reduces their voting power when they don't have an absolute majority and they're at risk of losing majority votes and they also don't want to they don't want to act in a way that is going to undermine the European Union and European politics overall and Donald Tusk the former European Council president and now president of the EPP has been trying to figure out how they're going to go about this However, we're going to need to figure out, well, he needs to figure out, and we're going to need to wait and see whether they can figure out a way of doing this and protecting European rights and protecting European democratic values without impacting the way in which this comes across. But this, this speaks to a large issue on when it comes to European politics in that the European Union doesn't necessarily have the powers to defend itself effectively and is very very reliant on the um, concerned parties such as member states which currently are aside from some discourse and some back channeling aren't really fighting against the actions in Hungary and Poland as effectively as they could 
primarily because the countries such as Emmanuel Macron, well, the countries such as France with leaders such as Emmanuel Macron, would be wary of uh, causing damage to their own cause with elections coming up due to the way in which this would look negative and impact the image of the EU negatively at home with those on the right to believe that the EU is an undemocratic and an overreaching pseudo-state. Germany has been quite has been somewhat vocal, but again, they're concerned about looking like they're fighting against their own brothers and sisters in the in the European Parliament parties. And some countries, until very recently, simply didn't care and in some ways enabled this. I mean, I know that uh, Salvini, when he was uh, in government in Italy, was supportive of Hungarian and Polish behaviour. But ultimately, we're going to need to wait and see how this is going to develop. We don't exactly know what the EU will do later down the line, how the discussion on Article 7 will continue, what the proposed actions in future from the EPP could be regarding Fidesz, or how any normative power from the EU top-down or from the member states could be impactful on fighting these issues. But the simple answer to this is that the EU is not currently tough enough. Now, we're approaching 20 minutes. We had, I had one question from an individual regarding what Russia is up to right now, because there is a lot of action on the Russian front, I'll say, regarding the EU and how they're acting. And what I'll do is the next episode on Friday, the 24th, I think, will be mostly concentrated on how Russia has been behaving throughout the coronavirus crisis. And I would be remiss if I didn't also include discussion on what China has been doing, because both countries have been quite aggressive in using this to spread their own image and improve their image globally. Uh, of course, if anybody has any additional questions, please do feel free to send them in. I'll try to answer any as I, as I can alongside this question. But the next question will be focused on Russia's behavior during this situation. And again, thank you very much, everybody, for tuning in. I hope everybody is handling the current lockdown well. There is a light at the end of the tunnel, so keep your chins up. And I hope that you will have a lovely day and see you all Friday. Take care.